Welcome to Our Connect Sessions, episode 71. I'm Paul, and I'm here with Amelia and Ken. And today we have two of our writers here at Our Connect to join us, Nicholas Carodi and Julia Ingalls. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hello. So today we, we have Nicholas and Julia on to talk about a couple features that they've recently written. Julia penned a piece on bank architecture and bank robbery with uh, an interview with a previous bank robber turned writer, Joe lawyer. And Nicholas has brought to us last week part one of a interview with Cryptome, a group of architects turned hackers. Not quite hackers, more whistleblowers. Whistleblowers. Yes. So these, these features were part of our June theme of privacy. And maybe uh, Amelia, you can talk a little bit about that theme. Sure thing. So we wanted to approach the topic of privacy very much around these issues of borders and boundaries and how in technology and also in physical infrastructure, you have these kind of dissolving of boundaries as information becomes more ubiquitous and more accessible. And that can come in the form of how to navigate the changing designs of banking structures from when they become more devoted to electronic systems of ATMs and such versus something like uh, Nicholas's interview with Cryptome and how they are intent on exposing a lot of documentation in the kind of the same vein as WikiLeaks around this kind of surveillance culture. So we approach it from both an explicitly architectural perspective, but also from infrastructural and uh, digital networks perspective. But let's start out with Julia, with your piece. Um, it started out with the interview with Joe Loya, who is a pretty fascinating character and kind of has a great story behind him. Can you tell a little bit about how you got the inspired to do the piece and sure. meeting with Joe? Uh, yeah, well, we here at Archonnect were debating themes. We were talking about Jeff Mana's book in which he investigates how burglary has sort of changed. And I knew that Joe had contributed to that book. And I thought it would be interesting to speak to him directly about his experiences. And essentially, he started robbing banks. And then eventually, after going to prison, reformed and is now a writer, works for television, and he's written a couple of books. And I was fascinated to talk to him about the importance of kind of the cycle logical underpinnings of a lot of bank design, and I think a lot of privacy design in general, kind of what people assume, and then how you can play off of that as a designer to either uh, enhance the security of your space or make people think it is more secure. And his experiences, which is detailed in the article, he basically was able to successfully rob so many banks because he knew that people would be assuming he would rob the bank in a certain way, and he would... <laughs> just not rob it in that way. And then he would be able to escape uh, notice. In fact, the way they eventually did catch him was that they embedded a packet, uh, like a sensory surveillance packet that located him via GPS. So he got away, but then eventually they tracked him with the device. But in terms of, you know, security officers apprehending him, that never occurred, really. So And his core tactic being basically... Not something ultra complex, not something ultra Ocean's Eleven Z, more just like people and specifically law enforcement will expect me to do one thing. So if I just do slightly different to avoid that, then I can easily get away. And I think that raised an interesting corollary to a piece that Nicholas, you wrote a, um, a few weeks ago about giving basic advice to people for security measures on in any type of architecture firm specifically, and how it's just basically that the most common hacks or the most common vulnerabilities that get exploited aren't ones that you could have patched if you were a security expert only or something like that. They're just common mistakes that people make or common expectations that people have purely out of laziness or formed habit. That is the way they do something. And so a hacker might take advantage of things like that, not, you know, digging into your personal archives just for fun. So I found it interesting that, to read the piece and find that explicit corollary between Joe Loya's perspective and just the rando hacker. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I liked how uh, going back to the history of bank design, how so many of them were designed to mimic fortresses to give people the feeling of security. But then if you actually look at how they were laid out, they weren't necessarily very secure at all. <laughs> You know, you have all these access points and surveillance isn't what it could be. And that's interesting, that kind of that separation between what you would hope they would, you know, design and what actually occurs. I do think that bank design has radically changed primarily because online banking has become such a thing. And they now are now really radically reshaping how they welcome in customers and even what service a bank provides exactly in an era when you can do most of your your transactions online. Do you think people feel more secure going into online banking than they would if they would have just done everything physically and walking into some concrete bunker. I think that's determined by your sort of generation. I think if you're over 60, say, then you have a like a fear of the online. But if you're under 60, then you're probably going to feel safer and more familiar with an uh, online sort of system. But of course, that depends on who, what kind of person you are generally. <laughs> That's a psychological discussion that we probably don't have time for. Unfortunately. Um, so, Nicholas, let's talk about your piece. Tell us a little bit about these architects behind Cryptome and how you first learned about them. So they're Deborah Natsios and John Young, and I might be mispronouncing their names or Deborah's name probably, but I don't know how I found them ex- exactly. I was really interested when I did that there were there is architects involved with what was described as kind of basically the OG and much more hardcore version of WikiLeaks. So unlike WikiLeaks, they don't censor their material. They've been criticized for posting the locations of, for example, Glenn Greenwald's house or Laura Poitras's house. And I was interested in how they found, because they still are practicing architects, what they saw as the moments of encounter between their practice and this practice of whistleblowing of sharing information. And describe a little bit about the actual website where they keep all of these documents that they're exposing. So Cryptome is like really a basic looking website. It's all courier, red and white, and just links. There's no form of navigation whatsoever. There's not even a search function. And so it's really, it's almost like you're forced to get into these journeys, these like meandering tours by yourself, just stumbling upon things. The archive is some 40 something megabytes, gigabyte, 40 something gigabytes, I believe, of data. And it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of like this, this maze that you can get lost in. So what was their intent in kind of deciding that this was going to be a major (laughs) endeavor of theirs? So originally, John was involved with the cypherpunk movement, which is, it emerged in the 90s. It was, I think it really operated through listservs. And Julian Assange, for example, was another early member of that group. And in fact, Julian Assange and John Young worked together in part to create WikiLeaks before John Young split. But the I think the motivation was coming from there was a lot of debates at the time around encryption. And in fact, I think it was a it was there's some kind of legal discussion about whether or not encryption counted as a right to bear arms, as a Second Amendment right. And they were active in that debate. And I'm not sure exactly what was the real like fundamental impetus, but it was in that culture that they started crypto. And how does their work with the whistleblowing relate to their actual practice as architects? So what I found really interesting about their practice is how much it's it's really deeply committed to the ethical standards of architecture, guidelines that are, for example, provided by the AIA about health and safety. They believe that architects should be first and foremost protecting the general public. And in the age of kind of information superabundance, that extends into exposing kind of hidden infrastructures, the the things that are making the world go around but aren't visible. And they do that mostly based out of New York City and the kind of continually growing invisible networks and infrastructures happening there. Yeah, they, they're based in New York City and they're they're not very like they're surprisingly open about 
the fact that they live and work in New York. I think one of the things is that they post everything regardless of the source. Unlike WikiLeaks, they clearly stated on the website that they're not going to protect the sources. They don't have the means to do that. So they're not this kind of like massive, well-funded organization like The Guardian that can take certain measures. Rather, they're just this really kind of open repository devoted to this basic principle of transparency. Can you just rifle off a few of the documents or resources that are posted there? Yeah, and I, I might mess some of them up, um, but uh, there's some really crazy things. There's, uh, once again, Glenn Greenwald's house was posted there, but so is Dick Cheney's. There's satellite imagery of nuclear facilities. These are kind of the more controversial stuff. There's also incredibly banal documents on there, but there's Clinton's emails to be really topical. There, They posted every one of the Edward Snowden emails that were they could. Um, I think there's still some that are kept by WikiLeaks, but they posted a ton of them that WikiLeaks censored, as well as like the Syria files, the documents taken from the Saad government. But then they, yeah, once again, a lot of it is also quite banal. There's a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests. One of the more interesting ones I found were the ones that were specifically related to crypto, where they asked to find what information I think it was the the Navy had on crypto, and it's all redacted, the whole thing. <laughs> so... <laughs> Those evil, very dangerous architects. Yes. <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> Redacted. How do they source all this all this information? Are people giving it to them or are they tracking it down themselves? I believe people are giving it to them. I think some of it they track down themselves, but once again, they're not really hackers. They're uh, more whistleblowers and they're really well known within the hacking community. So if someone has this information, if they get it from whatever a government server, then they'll often go to crypto early on. Although now I'd say WikiLeaks has a much higher profile, but within that community, crypto is well known. So are they kind of like independent renegades in this in this uh, mission that they're on, or are they part of a larger community of people that aren't necessarily representing themselves directly as much as they are? So, yeah, I'm, I'm careful to speak because I don't know really, but I believe so in a certain way they're renegades because they're I guess, more hardcore in certain ways. They're also very different than Julian Assange in that they're not kind of creating this media image. And in fact, they criticize in in my interview with them, they, they, they criticize Julian Assange a bit for the way that he's kind of self-branded. At the same time, they're definitely part of this very on, active online community. I was saying earlier that I've never had a tweet shared so much <laughs> in 24 <laughs> hours. It was like, it's gone around quite a lot. There's some irony to that. Just yeah. a little bit. You're on a list now, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I know. I'm definitely on a list. I'm not sure what Deborah and John know about me, but they probably know more about me than I know about them. And now us, by extension. <laughs> <laughs> my Skype going down was not my Skype going down, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nicholas. <laughs> the Coonsie file is being what? developed as we speak. That's not my name. <laughs> Part of what I enjoyed, Julia, about your piece with Joe Loya is how this guy who then went to prison for how long was he actually in prison for? Uh, I believe it was uh, seven years. I'd have to check, but it's a significant portion of time. And he spent a lot of that in solitary confinement. So, which, you know, isn't a far leap to another conversation about privacy. But in, in terms of privacy, it was almost this like weaponized thing of you being used to completely seclude someone from any type of outside world in ways that might be seen as an ideal if you're trying to protect yourself from getting hacked or having certain information blown on you. But I just was curious, in, we spoke a little bit about this in developing the piece. What in speaking with Joe and developing the piece did you kind of get from him about his ideas about privacy and his ideas around changing infrastructural or 
architectural models of what might be private or secure. Well, it goes back to the idea, his idea of assumptions. Uh, and we got into this kind of long-winded conversation about the nature of reality itself, but... <laughs> Essentially, it went back to the idea of what really are you stealing and can that be changed? In other words, the idea of conceptual theft versus the theft of tangible objects. And to answer your question a little more directly, he's noticed that banks have become, well, the, the idea of privacy, it's like in the past, you had a bank teller, you had a very traditional layout where you had like each stall that was a very like square layout. And then over the last several decades, that's gradually morphed into a far more curvilinear kind of design where you're taking the emphasis away from that kind of rigid layout into more of like a conversational sort of setting where you're going to be colliding actually with other people and other employees of the bank. So the purpose has changed. So in terms of how you experience privacy in that environment, uh, you're no longer entering solely as someone who's trying to, you know, take out money or put money in, you're entering as someone who's going to be involved in an interpersonal conversation or or transaction, if you will. So the environment is changing the very definition of what privacy is in that context. Does that make sense? No, you know, I think these are two very interesting topics. What's interesting about them for me, at least, is that here are two people that don't see any value in uh, in privacy, being the cryptome. Cryptome and, and uh, well, look, if somebody's robbing a bank, they certainly don't value my privacy. I mean, not to say that the banks don't value my privacy or value my privacy any more than anybody else does, but they're stealing from me. And there's something interesting that I think there's some kind of really weird thing that happens when you when you start to break down the age groups, you talk about the people who are more traditionally inclined to go to banks are people of cert of a certain age, but they're putting their faith and their and their value in in something that is ultimately intangible. It's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States, and it's backed by an insurance mm -hmm. policy that most banks purchase. And then that, it starts to make me consider. I'm like, well, I trust the online environment a lot more than I think a lot of people would, and then I'm put at risk by this cryptome or <laughs> organization. So now now I'm questioning that idea that there's somebody out there with us. In a specific purpose of devaluing my privacy and my good faith and my and my goodwill that, you know, I'm going to be left alone if I leave people well enough alone. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a little point of contention just that I think sure. that crypto does care and value privacy and it, they're not hackers who are looking into your credit card information. Rather, I think that what they care about is they think that a government doesn't have the same right to privacy. A government doesn't have that same right to secrecy. So it's really, it's, it's about people in positions of power. But that's not necessarily true, though. I have to, I have to respectfully disagree with them on that point because one of the things that WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and Snowden, I think to some degree, they at least they struggled with the idea that that information, at least they had the discussion. And even if it wasn't Assange himself having it, it was Assange with a larger group of people about what to release regarding the uh, Iraq war documents. So the, the, the debate that the New York Times had and various other institutions had was, is the value of the information more important than the lives of the people that it would put at risk who were still in harm's way? So. Once you start making that case that the information is more valuable than the lives that are still at risk, because, you know, they abrogated any responsibility for that. And they, but at least they had the discussion. I wonder, do they have that kind of discussion where they say, you know, this information could harm somebody and those people might still be at risk for harm if we put that information out? Is that a discussion that they ultimately have or even thought 
to consider. I think definitely. I think that they might say, though, that that information is already being deployed to harm people. So it depends who's being harmed and why. Look, believe me, I struggle with the Snowden issue. I struggle with it a lot because, you know, when you talk about the Pentagon Papers and you talk about he stayed here and was tried and he was convicted and we can agree or disagree whether or not what he did was correct. Snowden left. He's not here to prosecute. He's not here to stand for uh, whatever crimes the government might have. But I wonder, you know, if they're saying that, well, ultimately the government was responsible, that's ultimately the case. But still. At the same time, they don't feel any responsibility if somebody were to die based on the fact that they they put out information that ultimately caused that person's death. I mean, I wouldn't feel comfortable responding to that. It seems like a it's very, a real question, yeah. It seems like a very different difficult metric to gauge, you know, because it's like comes down to like ideological viewpoint of whether or not the world or people are, are safer with certain types of information out on the table than not. So, I mean, it would be, it would be hard to determine, you know, if that, if that viewpoint is, is correct or not. Mm -hmm. I, but I, so I guess it comes down to the individual. Definitely. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of like the central, central question. I think it's a very timely piece given what we're seeing happen at Gawker, just as an example, that there's this much more media friendly conversation around the rights of information access and what in terms of whistleblowing, people do have the right to, or there's a public good in releasing that information. And we can talk about Gawker as an example, but it's a little, it just sounds so much more silly in this context, where basically you have a very rich person who funds a lawsuit against an, a publication for saying mean things about a public figure. The mean things are nonetheless true, and the public figure is nonetheless a public figure. And that's in a journalistic world, why it's deemed relevant and important that that information get out there is because this is someone in the public eye who has a stead in the society. And therefore, it's important that we have this information available about them. Of course, that's that has its caveats, but it's harder when it's a system like crypto where it's releasing information that, of course, has a lot of societal repercussions to it, but it's still not clear how they're deploying that information. They're not deploying it as journalists to inform a greater public. In fact, the website almost makes it more difficult to, in a way, for a mass population to get this information. So if they're not journalists, they're not hackers, they're these kind of purist whistleblowers, what in a way, it's, it suggests like, what is their role here? Like, how can they control whether this is being used for ill or for good and, and whether or not they even care to? Yeah, I, I don't think that they're, they, sh they consider themselves that they should take on the role of arbiters of what is done with the information. And we do talk about in the piece kind of the question of accessibility. Does if uh, you're releasing this information, but nobody reads it, does it still matter? And they kind of argue that people who People who are are willing, like people who are concerned with this information will be willing to parse through it. They don't need to have this like web 2.0 fancy interface to see it. I mean, WikiLeaks does a similar thing. I think that journalists are pretty used to going through freedom of information request uh, documents and what they look like. So it's in a way a resource for journalists. It's a it's a kind of a, a double remove thing. And for interested parties, um, interested publics, whether or not those parties include people who are antagonistic to the interests of the United States government is a very real thing, a very real question. Like the New York Times called them a tip-off for terrorists. I don't know if that's maybe just being a little bit scandalous or if it's a valid critique. I'm kind of decided at the get-go with the piece, though, to kind of remove that that major issue from my thinking, <laughs> to be frank. <laughs> well, and the, and the jumping-off point being they are architects um, and how 
incredible it is to have that professional mindset going into these kinds of topics. And particularly the way they talk about architecture, it's once again, it's just, it's it's so striking how much they kind of almost represent this throwback to values of what like a public architect should be in terms of literally, I mean, they've worked on like shoring up failing old infrastructure and they, in the Bowery, for example, like homeless shelters in the Bowery. So, I mean, they have this like very deep social commitment that you see increasingly going away in the field. But then on the other hand, I mean, they're active in this very controversial way. Has that affected them at all? I mean, they're doing this work. Certainly their clients know who they are and uh, know what their firm is about. Has that impacted their ability to uh, get clients, clients who many times, you know, privilege certain information over other things? Oh, I think so. I think that uh, definitely I wouldn't know how much and they didn't really answer that. But yeah, I would say so. What type of architecture work do they do they practice? It's mostly public infrastructure work. Although I know that John has also uh, signed on. He's been like a signing architect for other projects. On John Young Architects, there's a a PDF with some of the projects he's been involved with. (laughs) JohnYoungArchitects.com. Nice plug. Yeah. <laughs> Link in the show notes. Yeah. I think it's fascinating that they're also practicing in New York as we have all these conversations around the, the Linksys system and how it's incredibly exciting for an architect to approach these newly connected means of bridging infrastructure and like personal devices in a really explicit way. And whether or not the architect should have some kind of design role in that or whether or not this is something, at least until this point, it's been more of the terms of the systems architect or the security analyst or so, and whether there's a way to kind of bring those two things together. Yeah. In our conversations, one of the things that I found really interesting was talking about kind of early 90s architecture culture when they were both, I think they both studied at Columbia. And the introduction of these new technologies and how architects got really into the kind of formal possibilities that these unleashed. But they found it really striking that nobody was looking at kind of what they thought were the more profound spatial implications of these technologies, the way that they affected how the city operates kind of invisibly, but very materially, which I thought was really fascinating. So Nicholas, when Amelia was referring to what's going on today with Gawker, I I wasn't even thinking about Gawker. I was thinking about uh, just in the past 48 hours with with, uh, Comey's release of uh, Hillary Clinton's, whether or not she violated any any federal laws. Did you have any discussion around that? There's something very interesting about that idea and that Hillary has almost unwittingly made the idea of top secret information kind of when you find out how it was shared and how easily it was, you know, um, uh, I won't say abused, but how the State Department has, hasn't has really had a real consistent policy. Uh, even our federal government doesn't have a really consistent policy about privacy around top secret information. Did that ever come up about at all? It didn't. No, no, we didn't actually speak specifically to the Hillary Clinton case right now, but I did think I was just reading an article about it and I found it really interesting that there was, um, that to circle back to the encryption guide discussion, that one of the biggest issues that was at stake was that someone on the Clinton campaign would click a, a malware link. And it wasn't so much actually the insecurity of the specific servers, which were housed in her private home, but just the, the same practices that would make the State Department servers themselves insecure. So it's almost, it's almost kind of like this symbolic question about the privately held servers, because apparently also the, this, uh, the State Department servers have been accessed by Russian hackers since like 2010 or something. Um, so there, there's, it's a really interesting thing that it does often, it kind of, to circle back, it, it really comes down to user practices, less than actual server security. Yeah, that almost, almost a little bit of a 
morbid connection, but um, we recently also posted to the news the first official death related to autonomous driving of someone who was in a car that was being operated under autopilot. It was technically a Tesla Model S, I believe. And what of course, it's coming up after the, all the, after this news is people being like, oh, I knew it. Like our autonomous vehicles are unsafe because of this one reported death. And of course, statistically, even though we have such limited data around autonomous vehicles and safety, it is pretty apparent that they are far less dangerous yeah. than the mere <clears throat> existence of humans because every single human on the road is a bundle of human <laughs> well, errors waiting to happen. They're already safer than human drivers. And we're just, I mean, Tesla's autopilot feature has been promoted specifically as not self-driving, but people are treating it like self-driving, which I think is the problem is because I think it's, it's, it's so much like self-driving that they're giving up and, and, and letting it take over. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the backlash about this, about this self-driving technology and how it's so dangerous is just ridiculous, I think. And because it points to the error, uh, the weakness is just like in the malware example, it's like, it's not that some active person is going to go in there and take advantage, but that they will just wait for some human error to happen. And that's when disaster can strike. It's a very fascinating conversation around, especially with the autonomous vehicles and linked also up to these new digital infrastructures when you do have these adoptions on large citywide scales and what the implications for that can be. I mean, in the case of the Tesla, didn't he have a portable DVD player and didn't a uh, big rig turn abruptly in front of it? Like a, he was on a highway and a big rig turned in front of him. I it mean, was, essentially he got like sheared. It was another system of like... He shouldn't have had the DVD player. That wasn't part of the Tesla system. That was something he imported. I mean, so it's kind of, I don't feel like, I feel like if you actually look at the specifics, it's being overblown because he wasn't operating the system the way it should have been operated. Exactly. I, yeah. you know. I thought I heard, too, that he was driving driving at a high rate of speed, uh, <laughs> yeah. a higher rate of speed than, than uh, anyone else on the road. At least anecdotally, someone said he passed them and they were doing 85 and <laughs> he was doing much higher rate of speed. So there's a whole host of human... Uh, human connections have nothing to do with the autonomous device. That brings up such all of these usability issues of like how eager certain people are to adopt these things and give themselves away to them to the point at which they are never marketed as such. They are not. We still fly. <laughs> Interestingly <laughs> enough, exactly. I mean, I don't want to get this too off topic, but the same guy that, that died in this accident actually posted a YouTube video two weeks before he died showing how Tesla's autopilot system saved him from an accident where a, a big truck started turning right into his lane, right right in front of him, and the, the, the car you know, corrected and moved out of the way. So, I mean, I mean, there was very little media attention given to that. Can I ask you guys a quick question? Since you've done this, have you, wow, this is kind of a loaded question because I hate, I'm, I was trying to figure out how to ask these questions without giving up my own. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're tr trying to remain private while asking about privacy. I like it. Well, not private, just understanding <laughs> that I rely a lot on, um, you know, I, I do online bill pay. I do a lot of my banking online. I don't even go to the bank anymore. I'm writing fewer and fewer checks. So after you've seen uh, and, and talked to these individuals, do you feel any, or did give you trepidations about, you know, disconnecting from, I mean, I still see banks being built every day and I go, wow, there's a reason for those being built, but I'm not seeing a need for it personally. How's this reporting affected you? Well, I sort of have the attitude that if something bad is going to happen to you, it's going to happen to you. <laughs> like you can edit out a lot of fear and worry by just accepting that there's a certain number of bad things that are going to occur to you. In other words, don't 
try and live your life in fear. Um, but with that being said, certainly, I don't feel great about uh, the level of transparency that exists in our contemporary lives. I too haven't written a check in I don't even remember how long years at this point. And it occurs to me that every single move that I make anywhere is being recorded. And, you know, an entire I, my entire life is basically being documented. I don't have anything to fear necessarily, but it's just strange because there is no security in that. If someone really wanted to get to me, it would not take any amount of effort, I don't think, you know. So I just assume that my safety is it's, you know, I'm I'm alive today. <laughs> but who this knows? This podcast was recorded. Yeah, basically. I mean, none of us is really, quote unquote, safe. But I don't think any of us has ever really been safe. There's always been dangers. And if someone wants to, you know, murder you, they will. I don't know. Anyway, that's oh, a yeah. dark turn. But I mean, do you feel like the previous era was really, quote unquote, safer? Or I don't know. Well, what was it? What's been interesting for me to hear you guys talk about this is that one of the things that I I do I do lament is that eye to eye contact. That, and that's one of the things that was interesting about banks. One of the failures is about banks that I don't think I don't know if you discussed or not is not the structure itself. It's the human capital inside that is oh, going to break because the person potentially has uh, the the ability to kill them. So that fail safe is always present in, in most cases, at least you know for going back to John Dillinger's days. I mean that fail safe was always there that if if that person was really committed to killing somebody, the president or the, whoever was operating the bank had access to make sure that nobody would or at least the least amount of people would die. But today, you know, the new rabbit hole is the worst one is that you get into a situation where your identity is stolen from you and getting it back is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. Um, I've known people who've had that happen to them, actually, and they've spent years trying to, you know, untangle all of the crap that comes with that having happened to you. I don't know. But I think it's kind of a question of do you want to fight a real war or would you prefer to fight a virtual one? And a virtual one, you can certainly get more stressed out, but you're not necessarily going to have any limbs removed. And again, I'm sorry to use such graphic terminology, but <laughs> I've just I've noticed that we increasingly have such a, a fragmentary or a, a non-existent relationship to, to real things. And I think we forget about violence. And I mean, this is the point you're raising with Dillinger, right? Is that, yeah. yeah, violence is a tool. I think we're moving towards a society that it just absolutely abhors that altogether. And so we're starting to design with the idea of let's fight online. And I'm kind of in favor. Of that. <laughs> I would prefer to, <laughs> if given a choice, I'd always prefer to fight online than offline. But I think maybe the issue is when online bridges into offline. And that's happening increasingly more and more where you see like a hack can bring down a, a nuclear facility as it did with uh, in Iran. Or uh, soon hackers might be able to hack into hospitals and things like that. Or um, like this guy recently that just got arrested for suspecting Google to be invading too much in his privacy. So he he uh, was arrested with like a Molotov cocktail and he was throwing he was throwing like white powder at the, the Google headquarters. I mean, yeah. that's that's, you know, the, the, these types of virtual interactions can become physical. Definitely. In an example like that. Yeah, Ken, to answer your question, I'm definitely getting more paranoid uh, the more pieces <laughs> I write, for sure. Um, the longer you sit in this room. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, like, it's getting really bad. Um, no, but I mean... You can I, stay in here if you want for the rest of the day, at least. <laughs> at least it's soundproofed, yeah. yeah. No, uh, the, the more I started researching, I kind of originally was paranoid about cryptom's paranoia, so paranoid about paranoia, because I was reading these really sensational articles about them. They turned out to be really sweet, so the articles were completely like... They're just they're junk articles, yellow journalism. But then, I mean, the more they, they have this concept of a reverse panopticon, and I think it's really speaks to this contemporary condition we're in where the issue isn't so much 
us being surveilled, although that's a really big issue, but it's kind of the way in which I broadcast my life and what that means kind of in the larger sense. So it's like one thing to post a picture of Instagram, but then I forget that every time I do that, I'm creating a map of all my locations everywhere I've gone. The kind of unconscious way that uh, I'm letting surveillance happen or I'm, I'm surveilling myself to a public or something like that gets me paranoid for sure. Because it's also so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, the more people are talking about privacy, the more public our culture is becoming. I mean, just with social media in general, it's amazing how how public people people uh, portray themselves. And, but I, I also think that there's a lot of cultural shifts that have happened in the last few years that are that are positive that are coming out as a result of this kind of more open discourse that we're having that that has been enabled through. He's kind of, you know, the the internet and open platforms of communication. Case in point, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> well, I was thinking, I mean, I think in the last decade, there has been much more, a much more, I mean, the attitudes towards the gay community has, has shifted dramatically in the last year or in the last decade. And I think that, you know, part of that is because of the way that community has been able to expose themselves and, and, and show the, the world that it's a part of, it's a part of our, our culture. You know, I think that if, if we were living in the same kind of private world that we did pre-internet, you know, that, that type of change may not have happened so quickly. That's a good point. I definitely agree with you. Have you heard of the open data movement? Um, no. It's a lot of it is in Canada and it's sort of like the very benign version of kind of what Krypton is doing. The idea of, it would have to be open data then. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, open data basically or open data <laughs> makes use of government records that this was, this happened, I don't know, about a decade ago too, probably, but put a lot of information that previously was unavailable out into the public domain and let people kind of connect on a, a grassroots community level. And I mean, basically it resulted in like better recycling initiatives and more efficient ways of parking. And I mean, kind of banal urban things, but things that were good. So I think that transparency, I'm not against it per se. It's just, I think it has a lot of ramifications that as we live through it, we're starting to uncover and not all of them are going to be positive, but mm -hmm. a lot of them are, I would prefer to live in a world where we can discuss things openly as opposed yeah. to one where we just imagine what's in the dark. <laughs> Definitely. We've also, we've also learned that access to information does not equal a higher intelligence in the population. If Remember that amazing piece or amazing like viral tidbit that came out after the Brexit decision of Google searches for what is the EU spike after <laughs> Brexit decision comes in. And it's like that information <laughs> was in no way like clamped down. That was very, it didn't need an open data, open data or data movement behind it to, uh, to get out there. But nonetheless, the choice to access that information. And in a way, with increased access to information, you also have to take more seriously the choices you do make and to what to access which information you are accessing. And that doesn't necessarily always end up for the best. That's my downer point. <laughs> <laughs> well, one one thing I wanted to just bring up that I just thought about before we finish today is, um, you know, there's there's some movements towards kind of combining the physical and the and the virtual worlds to kind of increase openness and I guess I guess decrease privacy a little bit. For example, I, I recently signed up to this service called Nextdoor. Have you guys ever used this? Yes. Yeah, it's it's really I, I don't I have no idea how I came across it, but basically it's a private social network that is limited to your neighborhood. So you sign up, you put in your address and it does some kind of verification that, that verifies that it's actually you and you really do live at that address. And then all of a sudden you're connected to all your neighbors. And as a result, 
it's been pretty fascinating. Like I see people uh, sharing babysitter information, like the kind of stuff that you would never share with somebody that you didn't know personally, but you know that you're, they're in your neighborhood. So, you know, there's this kind of safety in that kind of uh, level of privacy. But how long have you been a part of that? Like three days. It's three days. Yeah, it's wild. Let me tell you what you'll find in a very short time <laughs> on that, and it'll drive you nuts. I think I may have found it, but go on. <laughs> This I found in my, on my, because I'm part of next door here in my, in my neighborhood. So what you'll get is um, right around Christmas time, you'll get, hey, there's this van driving down the street with, I don't know, Nevada license plates, and it looks kind of shifty. And then some packages were missing. And it's like, wow. So I'd be on the lookout for a Nevada van uh, stealing packages from my front door. And that happened here all the time. And I'm just like, well, why Why are you sharing that information with me? I mean, shouldn't you be calling the police? And, and at that point, are we going to start calling the cops on every New Yorker that happens to drive through on my neighborhood? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, is, it, it gets, it, what happens is, is it starts to create that, I don't know if you ever saw that um, Twilight Zone episode, The Monster on Mulberry Street. Anybody familiar with uh, that one? That's not the pig one, is it? No, it's the one, <laughs> it's the one where um, this little neighborhood, there's like this, it's almost like a, a clash between like War of the Worlds. And it was right around the time, you know, the Red Scare and the Red Menace and a whole deal. So the, there was a supposed alien crash and all of a sudden th- this cohesive, very neighborly uh, community starts turning on each other and starts pointing the finger and thinking that the other person's an alien, this person, you know, hey, where was this person? And so it starts to, you could start to see the McCarthyism in that storyline. And what it was really picking up on was that you just, the the things that that start to uh, eat at you on the outside start to corrode the uh, the interior language of your community. And what you'll find on that next door is that yeah, there's some of those good things, but if you don't have if you don't know your community members already, your neighborhood people already, it is a worthless tool because these people that you think you know, uh, if you don't actually physically meet them, are fucking nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I live in the heart of like hippie community and the craziest racist bullshit comes out of these people. I'm going, you hippies are nuts. Yeah. <laughs> well, as, as we've learned with any social network specialized and location verified or not, it's amazing what things, what people will say when they feel they have that like security of that small community or anonymity or just go to an Arconnect forum. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I have, I have noticed a shocking amount of posts about people concerned about like, you know, African-American or Latino men either walking down the street or sitting in a parked car. Like that's, that's a lot. There's a lot of warnings about that, which just exposes, you know, some kind of scary racist thoughts. But yeah, sometimes you don't want to know that much about other people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> yeah. In certain circumstances. But then again, I mean, you become more enlightened about, you know, maybe maybe you start becoming more empathetic to other people's beliefs or maybe you start becoming, I don't know, That's inspired. <laughs> you know, people think one thing about me just based on based on how I post on on your site. And I think, you know, I play a couple of roles and and I like playing those roles. I like fucking with people. And but I think when you when you get to know me, I mean, I wouldn't have friends. I wouldn't have a family if I was that person that is on there, like causing someone some uh, agita. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that you only break down those stereotypes if you actually physically meet and have a conversation with people. And, and that's what's 
what's weird is that people are using the virtual for a substitute for actual real communication and real empathy. And, you know, that's that's what happens on next door is like you said, is that, you know, we're one thing when we vote, we're another thing, we're in our community and we're protecting so-called protecting our family. Yeah. Good point. Sorry. <laughs> Good point to end on, I think. Well, I think we can wrap this up today. Thanks to Nicholas and Julia for joining us and sharing us some more on, on your features. And I encourage everybody to go and read those. There's a lot of other great features up on the site. So spend some time and read and share it with friends in real life. <laughs> and, and through Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> um, Our real friends. <laughs> all right so um and and stay tuned for monday there's another one-to-one coming up after this week we uh took a little break for the um fourth of july julia uh julia amelia who are you uh who are you gonna be talking to on monday so we'll be continuing our checking in on what's happening with brexit uh podcasting with an interview with mark middleton at grimshaw who spoke with me a little bit about how the firm is responding to and trying to anticipate what might happen after the Brexit decision. I'm very interested in listening to that interview. Mark is a really bright guy. He's a partner at Grimshaw, which is a huge firm. And I'm sure that they're they're feeling the effects of this decision. He was very he was very positivist throughout the entire thing, but also spoke many times about how kind of cringingly British he felt saying things like just got a stiff upper lip, not actual. I'm I'm paraphrasing. It was another equally adorable British phrase for keep on keeping on. But overall, yes, he had some very good thoughts about very weighted, well weighted critical thoughts about what Brexit might mean. Well, very valuable perspective to to hear. So, yeah. And until next week, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, Arcnext Sessions, Arc Sessions at Arc Sessions at Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arcnext Sessions, and uh, give us a review or a rating on iTunes. It won't affect your privacy levels whatsoever. <laughs> I'm sure, probably for the better. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.